Hi, and welcome to Life in Balance, the official podcast of Balance for Blind Adults. I'm your host, Naomi. I work as an occupational therapist for Balance. This podcast is about all the things that help people who are blind or living with partial sight live life to the fullest. Each episode, we will speak to someone with lived or professional experience about tips and tricks for how to adapt everyday activities to vision loss, either for yourself or for your loved ones. So come along and listen to learn about living life in balance. I sat down with Bruce Horak, a visually impaired artist currently based out of Stratford, Ontario, who paints, acts, and is a talented musician. Welcome to the show, Bruce. It's very nice to be here. Uh, my name is Bruce Horak. I am a uh, visually impaired visual artist and uh, performer and creator. I lost uh, over 90% of my eyesight to a childhood cancer, uh, retinoblastoma, which is cancer of the eyes. And I lost my right eye completely. And my left eye, I have uh, less than 9% vision. Visual acuity is very minimal. It's uh, extreme tunnel vision augmented by floaters and uh, all sorts of distortions and things. I also had a cataract when I was four and a half years old. So I've been living with vision loss my whole life and uh, just trying to make a make a go of it, just trying to make it work. Well, judging by your background, it seems like you have been making quite the go of it. Behind you is a number of different paintings. I can only assume at least some of them are yours. Yeah, I'm in my office right now in Stratford, Ontario, which is where I've been sheltered and placed for the last, uh, oh gosh, year and a half, I guess, uh, going back to January of 2020. And uh, I've been in Stratford and I've set up a, an art studio here. So behind me, there are some paintings of mine and uh, there's a, a large poster which was presented as part of uh, the Bentway Art Project last year, which was uh, kind of a reach out project in Toronto to put out some uh, some work just kind of celebrating where we are. And the, the big word behind me is uh, able, which uh, is something I meditate on quite a bit as I have been living with a disability most of my life. Um, and I have been very, very fortunate to have encountered a number of uh, able-bodied and disabled-bodied uh, practitioners in the arts who look at limitations as opportunities for growth and expansion. And this is something I uh, I hope to to kind of embody in my practice and inspire in others. Glad to hear that. I'd love to touch on that. But maybe we can start by talking a little bit about how you got into the arts in the first place. Uh, I, I didn't really have any other choice. <laughs> How did I get into the arts? Well, I, I grew up in a very artistic family. My dad was uh, an English teacher and a drama teacher. My mom was a writer. And uh, all I have three older brothers, and they're all involved in the arts in some way. And uh, yeah, you know, we started putting on plays when we were kids and uh, reenacting Star Wars to the best of our ability. And uh, music was in the house and writing and painting and drawing and, and it was just a, a house full of creativity and, and even though I was, uh, you know, not necessarily able to see as well as my brothers, um, I was really just encouraged to, to keep creating and, and, and uh, keep into the practice and I, I got right into it in uh, junior high and high school. Um, 
you know, we had uh, three electives that we could take in grade 10. So I took music, I took art, and I took theater. And then in grade 11, we had to cut one back. So I dropped music. And then in grade 12, I, I dropped art. And it wasn't out of, uh, a, you know, a lack of passion for the other pursuits. It just was really keen on writing. Uh, and I thought uh, writing for the theater would be a great thing. And I just delved right into that. And uh, right out of high school, I worked as a junior apprentice at Alberta Theater Projects in Calgary, hoping to expand my, my practice as a writer. And then I got bit by the theater bug and I just kind of got right into that. Um, you know, I've, uh, I've been really fortunate that I've been able to kind of practice uh, a number of different um, disciplines, uh, writing, producing, acting, uh, composing, performing music, um, you know, just all of that stuff. And yeah, you know, I, it, to be honest, I, I, I refrained from getting back into visual art because I, I was, I guess I was very judgmental of the kind of art I was creating. I never felt it was, you know, the photorealism and the, the, the precision that someone with, with 2020 eyesight was able to to execute and then in 2011 a friend of mine and i sat for just a conversation and he saw i had had, had a white cane with me and he'd known me since college and he said why why are you carrying a white cane like is it a prop like what's going on with this thing and i said well actually uh, i kind of need it it's and it saved my life on a number of occasions and i explained to him that you know my my visual acuity was not you know, 2020, and he was quite surprised by that. And uh, so I sat down with him and I painted his portrait, tried to paint him as I saw him. And expressing myself in acrylic paint, um, it just opened something up in me that uh, that hadn't been accessed through writing or through performing, but actually, you know, trying to find a way to uh, to visually depict my visual impairment. Um, yeah, it, it, it really opened something up in me and that has turned into a whole other career of visual art. And I started out doing visual art, um, trying to express how a visually impaired person sees to fully sighted people. Um, and, you know, that was, uh, that was quite rewarding in a lot of ways. And then I, my practice shifted when I started to meet other visually impaired painters and sculptors and artists, visual artists. And, um, you know, we started to share some of our practices and some of our techniques. And I realized, you know, there's, there's a great deal of value, not only in just sharing how a visually impaired person sees to someone who's fully sighted, but also how does a visually impaired person see to someone else who is visually impaired. And uh, yeah, the practice has kind of has shifted in that, in that direction. And yeah, it's, it's pretty thrilling. That's the, the long answer to a very short question. I don't know. It's opening up a lot more questions for me. I mean, what is that uh, like? The process of describing in art what a visually impaired person looks like to a visually impaired person, or you know, how does that exchange of ideas translate into your artwork? Well, when I first started painting the portraits, I would... Um, like I will wear a generally I'll wear a contact lens or pretty heavy glasses, which um, you know affords me a little bit more vision. So when I when I paint as I see it, I take my glasses off or I don't wear my contact lens, and so I I really have to sit back and just see what it is that I'm seeing. Um, and this is a huge part of the of the drawing practice. I I picked up a book 
back in uh, 2011 called Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain by Betty Edwards, which completely changed the way that I draw and paint. And something that, that stuck with me was how vision happens in the brain and that sight happens in the eyes. And if you have uh, no sight, you still have vision to express. And that is um, a sense of space. It's a sense of time. It's a sense of texture. It is a sense of shape. All of those things can still be experienced without physical eyes. And so I have absolutely latched on to a sculptural, tactile sense of painting. And there's usually there's a painting right behind me that I can touch, but this one is just flat. And, and it is built with uh, acrylic paint, but also embedded are glass beads, are um, textural sculptural elements to the painting that is meant to be touched. So uh, uh, breaking down that barrier of when you walk into a gallery and you feel like, oh my God, I really want to touch that Monet because it looks like jello or it looks like ice cream or whatever. And, but you can't because it's behind glass and, and you know, you'll get arrested. But my work is meant to be, it's meant to be experienced in a tactile sense. And so um, what changes for me as a painter is I get out of my, my sort of locked in physical body of I'm just working on a nine by 12 and it's going to be very tight and all the brush strokes are going to be really even or whatever. Now I get into a full dance piece that is physical because my experience as a physical being is expressed through the physicality of painting on a canvas and how that texture then when you put your hand over it, you can feel, oh, there's the rush of that brush stroke or there's the, there's the, the immediacy of that jab that was happening with the brush because it's a huge dense glob instead of a flowing arc of paint. Um, this really excites me um, as an artist um, getting into uh, a fourth dimension of the work you know it's no longer just two or three and built up but actually hey there's time there's immediacy there's there's uh, a sense of flow um you know even pause can be expressed in a tactile sense that not necessarily in just the visual sense um yeah these things really excite me mm -hmm. The multi-sensory approach I like yeah. a lot and I like how you spoke to, um, I don't know if the word is, the best word is breaking down vision, but the idea that often, I guess as a sighted person, when I see something, I'm not, I'm, I'm seeing an object, right? I think, you know, here's my microphone and I'm not necessarily thinking about the texture of the microphone, its shape, its touch. Uh, and all of those things can be broken down and rebuilt and re-expressed in art, which is really cool. Maybe we can shift over to another form of art that you mentioned. You are currently in Stratford, which is the home of the performing arts, one may say, in Ontario, <laughs> uh, the heart of the, the Stratford Festival. Arts. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. And so you've talked a little bit about your your journey in terms of performing arts at school, at least in high school, and then maybe a little bit beyond that. Can you talk a little bit about your journey as an actor? Sure. Um, how did I get into acting? Well, I guess I was always acting up in school. Um, well, I'll, 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 I'll go back to the very, my, my first memory of, of witnessing a live performance, which was in elementary school in Calgary, um, I, I would have been in about grade three or something. And we got called down to the gymnasium one morning to see a play. And our usual gymnasium had been transformed 
into uh, like a basement apartment. And we all sat on the, on the ground in the gymnasium and we watched this performance and it was called Zeke and the Indoor Plants presented by Quest Theater. And these actors came out and they were playing kids and it was a, you know, 45 minute show about these, this group of kids who get a band together and you know what a band goes through. Uh, and they played their own instruments and they sang songs and there was drama and it was it was amazing. And at the end, we all got pencils from Quest Theater that said, seeking the indoor plants. And for years, I hung onto this pencil and I thought about that play that had tr completely transformed what I knew to be my gymnasium into a theater experience. And I was just so inspired by that. And I thought, you know, what I really want to do is I want to write plays and I want to, you know, tour to schools and do yeah like a live presentation stuff and yeah when i got out of uh, high school i i started writing plays and i went into theater school and eventually ended up working for quest theater for for five or six years touring shows writing shows and getting to tour to um schools all over alberta and bc and, and saskatchewan and uh the the second show i ever did for them was a play called what you can't see which is what i i, I wrote as sort of semi-autobiographical show about a kid who uh, is visually impaired and he tries to hide his visual impairment from from the school bully and you know mm -hmm. gets into various amounts of troubles mildly autobiographical I suppose um, and in the show you know I, I have I have to explain to my friends that I, I don't see very well and and I have an artificial eye and um, and every day I would go out into these school gymnasiums and I would play this kid who was visually impaired and has an artificial eye, which is me. And at the end of the show, we would have a Q&A with this with the student body. And sometimes there were four or five hundred kids in the, in the gymnasium watching this show. And inevitably, some kid would be like, do you really have an artificial eye? Can you take it out? And their suspension of disbelief and their understanding of okay i'm watching a play and this guy's saying that he's blind but is he really and he's he looks like he's fully sighted and he can act like he's fully sighted but he says that he's blind and so what's that about and the conversation that happened after those shows was completely transformative and i realized that i appear fully sighted i live in a liminal place between being totally blind and being fully sighted and the only person who knows my experience is me and if i don't speak up about this no one will ever know and they will go through their life full of assumptions and our connection will be diminished by that and it transformed the way that i continue to and i hope to continue to beyond this uh, move through the world in the sense of telling my story not being afraid to tell my story and be open about it and not only that but as a visually impaired person to to recognize what it is that i need and not be afraid to ask for it mm -hmm. Those conversations sound really powerful. And I like truly that. No, for sure. The, that feeling of being in the liminal space, the intercategorical. I think mm -hmm. that art can, that's a whole thing that we've been talking about is breaking down those boxes or categories. So it makes a lot of sense. I guess on a more practical note, I'm curious whether or not there's any kind of accessibility pieces that need to be considered when you're setting up a set or going through <clears throat> developing the play and its presentation? Is that something that you have to keep in mind when you're uh, putting together or producing a show? Well, I would say that accessibility is is kind of forefront on my mind in, in, in every aspect of my life. Um, what I'm 
slowly learning is that uh, there's technology available that wasn't available, you know, even five or six years ago. Um, you know, Zoom functions, screen reader functions, apps. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot of help out there. Um, oftentimes, I don't realize that there is help available until I've uh, been able to articulate what it is that I need. And then someone comes along and says, oh, well, there's an app for that. Uh, <laughs> which, uh, you know, I, I think it probably seems a bit juvenile, but it's, it's totally true. I, I, I'll get so frustrated with, oh, God, my, my God, I can't find my car keys and oh, or not that I drive or I can't find my house keys or whatever. And someone will say, well, there's, there's a thing you can get and you just whistle for it and then away you go and, and that'll find you've got tech, technological solutions for it. Um, uh, specifically with visual art, um, I work on an iPad and I use zoom functions on the photograph so I'm able to zoom in on details and features that uh, previously I wasn't able to see at all. Um, uh, yeah, and I, I use the zoom functions and the large print functions uh, on the computer for writing and for corresponding. Um, yeah, all of that technology. In terms of mobility, uh, Google Maps is amazing. Uh, even if I'm like this morning, I had to go find a location here in Stratford and I just plugged it in and it told me when to turn and when the location was on my left. And, uh, you know, that's that sort of stuff is is fantastic. And, you know, I, I would like to just take a moment to talk about getting a white cane. Mm -hmm. Because uh, I resisted it for my whole life. Um, you know, I, I've been a client of the CNIB since I was very, very young. And uh, I saw my peers and my colleagues using white canes. And I thought, I'm not blind enough to have to use one of those things. And, and if I get a white cane, I'm going to get mugged. That was basically my my thought is like I'm gonna make myself into a target. I'm gonna look like the weak one of the pack, and I'll be the I'll be the easy pickings if I'm walking around with a white cane. And so I resisted it wholeheartedly out of um, you know out of fear and and out of a concern for my own safety. And then when I was in my early 30s, I got an audition for a part in a movie, and the movie was called Blindness. And in the movie, there's an epidemic and everyone goes blind. My agent called me up and he's like, Bruce, you'd be perfect. There's a part in this movie for you. He's like, you, you play a blind guy. And he's like, you'd be great for it. The problem is you don't look blind enough. Hmm. And I said, well, no problem. I'll just go to the CNIB where I'm a client and I'll get a white cane. So I show up at the CNIB and uh, the fellow working at the store, there's like, yeah, you can, you can have a white cane. You're a client. The first one's free, uh, but you have to have mobility training. And so I go back to my apartment on Young Street with this white cane. I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to have mobility training. This is going to be awful. And I'm going to be a target and all that. And this young woman shows up to show me how to use the cane. And we go out onto Young Street. And as I'm walking up the street with the cane out, and for the first time in, you know, 27 years, I'm walking completely upright because the cane is out and I've got my head up because I don't have to stare at the sidewalk, wondering where my next foot is gonna, is there gonna be a curb? Is there gonna be a lamppost? I can walk upright and my shoulders are back and I'm breathing easy. And it's like, I didn't have the stress that I'd had before. And I'm able to see the sun and feel it on my face and hear the traffic going by and hear people jumping out of my way, <laughs> you know, some of them into traffic. Um, 
I turn the, the corner and, and I feel a car has come into the crosswalk, but because I have my cane out, it moves back out of the way. Like I just moved a car with a piece of metal and I go down onto the subway and as the doors open, someone offers their arm and somebody stands up and is like, do you want to have a seat? And I'm like, oh, my legs are fine. Don't worry about it. <laughs> um, and it has completely altered my experience of the world just being that cane i mean it goes before me in so many ways it absolutely uh you know comes replete with assumptions and prejudices and all of that and sure there's danger in that but there's there's danger just in leaving your front door and i would rather have the opportunity for safety and for someone to see me and say that guy might need some help and it's opened me up to so many helping hands and so many wonderful people who are just looking to help. Mm. And, you know, it's funny, like, I've, I, I don't, I, some of your listeners might relate to this, but there can be opportunities where people are too helpful. Yeah, you know they're 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 grabbing you and they're they're gonna help you into the elevator when you don't need it or they're gonna be over describing uh, locations like yeah there's a bench beside you there's a door right there you know and they're over 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 describing and there are times in me where I'm like okay I don't need that and you can actually shut up but there's another side of me that for so many years I have gone without that help that if I'm getting too much of it what a wonderful thing really. And who am I to say, you know what, Mr. Helpful, <laughs> shut up. <laughs> who am I to say that when this is a, this is someone who's like, you know, you, well, we all have had that experience of like, should I help? Should I offer the thing? And am I going to embarrass myself if I've done it? And it's like, you know what, far better to be over helpful than under. And, you know, again, I, I think back on that, that uh, great Mr. Rogers quote about look for the helpers. When there's a tragedy in the world, look for those people who are helping because that's where humanity truly lies. And uh, yeah, I guess I'm just, at least at this point in my life, I'm sitting in a, in a place of immense gratitude for those people who are over-describing, who are perhaps um, offering an elbow when it isn't needed. Um, I would just say, don't grab somebody. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't do that to a to, to anybody really, just, unless I'm about to walk into a truck, um, which hopefully I don't do anymore. <laughs> hopefully I can hear the truck coming. Yeah. Do you, so you use the cane, would you say every time you, you leave the house now or do you leave uh, it home yeah. sometimes? Oh, I, I leave at home quite a bit. Um, and certainly here in Stratford, I'm, I'm probably guilty of leaving at home more than I take it out. Um, I always have it with me. Uh, because primarily I need it when I, when there's a severe change in lighting, if I'm going in from, you know, a really bright outside to a dark indoors or vice versa. Um, and, and certainly when I go into a location that I don't know, I just feel like in the last 16 or 17 months that I've gotten to know the town pretty well. So I don't feel like, oh, I need to have the cane out. And, you know, there's, uh, yeah, it's, it's still kind of a, a weird psychological flip of if I've got the cane out, I have to move a little bit slower because, what's that dude doing with, you know, he's, he's going at a full sprint, but he's got a white cane. Like that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> so I'm, I, you know, there's, there's still a bit of my, um, I guess my, uh, my consciousness that's still considering the world 
of the visually impaired from the fully sighted instead of just living my own truth. But, uh, you know, I've, I've, uh, hopefully I have a few more years to figure that one out. <laughs> yeah, it's a, I'm sure it's a journey, you know, taking on <laughs> exactly. the, uh, figuring out our identities. I don't think we ever necessarily stop that. And... Yeah, I'm in flow. Let's say that. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. I am very curious. How did it, how was that experience of, of being in that film blindness or what's the experience of being like in, in the biz, in the films? I didn't get the role in the movie blindness. Uh, um, apparently I looked two-sided. The, uh, yeah, it's funny. I, working in the business uh, as a visually impaired artist has been, uh, it, it's, it's been quite extraordinary. Um, I would say that my more of my successes have come from being vulnerable, uh, being willing to talk about my disability, being able to um, frame my disability and ask for what it is that I need so that uh, more projects can come to fruition. Um, it seems to me that artists are looking for a way to do it, to get it done. Um, something I learned very early on in theater was that like the show was going to go on. It's not that it must go on. It's going to happen. And whether or not, uh, you know, everybody's there and healthy and a hundred percent, like I've, I've done shows with stage managers with a book in hand because an actor is sick, like opening mm -hmm. night happens and it happens. And, um, so we're, we're going to find a way through this and we're going to, this thing is, is going to, it's going to work. Um, and I love that about about uh, theater, and I I try to take that that kind of um, raw stubbornness into all of my other practices, whether it's music or or visual art or writing or or what have you. Um, it, it's just going to get done, and we're going to account for everyone's abilities where wherever they are at that day. You know, I've done I've done shows where an actor had to leave the stage to go throw up backstage and then make mm -hmm. another entrance for the next thing. Uh, I've done shows where the power went out halfway through and we just shifted up stage and flashlights came on. You know, we, we, we found a way through and, and the experience in the moment is one that you'll never forget. And as an audience member, if you've ever been to a show where the power went out and suddenly, you know, there were three ASMs with flashlights, you will not forget that show. It's an unrepeatable and completely memorable experience. And um, so the ability of artists to, to adapt and to, to move forward and to embrace whatever it is that we have right now is, it, yeah, it just keeps me going and is so inspiring. And my experience on, um, on stage, uh, on film, on you know, television, whatever uh, has been has been exactly that um an incredible number of artists who go okay this is what we got right now how do we make it work what's mm. what's the solution in this moment if it's going to require four and a half pounds of duct tape we got the tape duct tape's pretty great <laughs> it fixes a <laughs> lot of problems <laughs> it sure does yeah yeah it's a duct tape approach to art that's my my philosophy it's almost like art performance it's inherently about responding in the moment. And in that sense, it makes it adapt to the needs of whoever is doing the art, whoever is taking in the art, 
it has that really dynamic quality about it. Yeah, I think the I think the long lasting art certainly does that, and uh, I gain great inspiration from that. And wow, what a lovely conversation! Thank you for this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually I'm I'm leaving this inspired. Yeah, well, I was gonna say I'm gonna go buy some you. duct tape now. <laughs> <laughs> You know, they do. There's uh, people do make art out of duct tape. Oh, sure. Maybe there's a good metaphor in there, some kind of piece to be yeah. made. Who knows? Beautiful. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about your music and what that's been like uh, making, being a musician and composing and performing? Music, yeah, it's uh, it's the best. In the words of Frank Zappa, music is the best. Um, I started playing the piano in grade two, I think. And then I took up the guitar. Yeah, it, you know what? I, I have an older brother who is a musician and uh, mom sings. And actually all my brothers play. I think Dave and, and Clayton both play the saxophone. Hi, Dave, hi, Clayton. Um, yeah, and I, I started uh, drumming actually when I was in grade eight. And I got really serious into playing the drums and took drum lessons and joined a, a marching band and was a snare drummer, which is hilarious. I mean, the beautiful thing about being a snare drummer in a marching band is you just have to follow the tuba player. So, you know, and, and you can just watch for the gold sort of sphere in front of you and just keep behind them. And it's always left on the one. Um, and I loved it. And, uh, you know, playing the guitar is, has been just a passion of mine since I was very young. And... I got a drum kit in high school and I ended up selling the drum kit to go to theater school because it was one or the other. And that sort of put my musical, what I thought was going to be my musical direction on hold as I was going into theater. But uh, then when I went to theater school in Calgary at Mount Royal College, I met a bunch of artists and performers who were also incredible singers and musicians. And so between rehearsals, we would sit with guitars and sing and come up with songs. And it was this kind of constant gelling. And they were all fans of musical theater. And I ended up writing a musical in uh, my second year out of uh, theater school for Shakespeare in the Park for the family show. And uh, yeah, I've just been combining writing music, performing music, and live performance and theater ever since then. So being a sound composer for uh, various shows that have happened at Alberta Theater Projects, either it's the interstitials uh, or the interscene songs uh, or even background music has been a big part of my, my life. Um, but I'll tell you, um, in high school, when I was in grade 11, I met, uh, well, no, actually, we, I think we met in grade nine, but in grade 11, Rich Pantaluck and I would skip class on Friday and go downtown into Calgary and, uh, and we'd stand on the street corner and busk. Mm. And uh, so over lunch hours, we would stand there with our guitar and the two of us would sing like, you know, Everly Brothers and Bare Naked Ladies songs or whatever. And because we were a couple of cute high school kids, we made a few dollars off the suits in Calgary. And it, it just became our thing. We would go busking and uh, got into street performing very early on. And uh, anytime I would go back to Calgary, Rich and I will get together now and we'll go out to the farmer's market and have a couple of hours of busking. And we don't have to come up with a set list or we don't have to rehearse. It's just we fall into this pocket of two old friends who are just playing songs around like we're around the campfire. And he is uh, he's got this incredible ear for harmony and just the two of us would sing. And, and it's uh, an expression of pure joy that uh, that really nothing else compares to. Um, I think any 
really anyone out there who's had the experience of singing in harmony with another human being. Um, it's, it, it's just, you're transported to another realm. Um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, music is the best. I'll, I'll go back to Frank Zappa's quote, music is the best. So I, I keep writing, I keep composing and, uh, you know, got in my art studio here, I've got instruments and there's a keyboard and, yeah, if I ever get uh, blocked when I'm working on a painting or on any writing, I'll just pick up a guitar and I'll just play. And eventually by working, it seems like, you know, kind of fiddling with the shoelace, the whole boot comes untied. And uh, yeah, it's it's the best. That's an interest. I've never heard that metaphor before, but it makes, it totally makes sense. Start with one piece and the rest kind of falls into place. Because that's, that's something I think when it comes to inspiration, a lot of people struggle with from time to time is all the metaphor that often comes up is the blank canvas, but maybe yeah. the the quiet of before the music is also hard to figure out where to start. So maybe just even taking up, biting off one piece, the rest will come. Well, it's, it's funny because sometimes I'll write my best poetry or songs or you know, I'll, I'll come up with the best inspiration for a painting when I'm doing something totally other, when I'm making coffee or when I'm going for a walk, when I'm, when I'm just in a whole other part of my brain. It doesn't even, it doesn't necessarily have to be a creative part, but, but yeah, sometimes it's the, uh, the, the, the loosening of one element of creativity through the, the practice of another. Ah, so much food for thought. But uh, before we right. wrap up, I have a, one last question for you. And it's a bit of it's a big of a big question, but oh dear. Well, not not <laughs> not an overwhelming one, but pl there's plenty I'm sure you could say on the subject. But uh, for the people who are listening to this podcast and listening to you and thinking, you know, I've always thought about getting into performing arts or visual arts or performance, but I'm not sure where to start. Do you have any advice or words of wisdom for them? Hmm. Where to start? I think set yourself up to start. It's much easier to go to the gym when all of your gym equipment, your pass, your keys, your clothing, your bag is packed and set by the door. Because when you wake up, when the alarm goes off in the morning and it's like, okay, it's time to go to the gym, the last thing you want to do is have to go and gather all that stuff so you can leave the apartment to go to the gym. So if it's all packed by the door, ready to go, you have set yourself up to start. And it's the same with a creative practice. Set your studio up. Have the lighting where it needs to be. Have your technology set up. Have your easels and your paints and whatever. And make that part of the practice. Don't expect to set up and then start painting. Expect to set up. Then go and take a break or have a day or whatever it is. But a big part of the practice is just get it set up. And as someone who has been on the road for 15 years, the first thing I do when I get into a hotel room or I get into a new location is I unpack and I get myself set up so that I am now here. The artistic practice is the same way. You've got to be here and take that time, dedicate it to get yourself set up to start. And it may sit for days and you may not have the inspiration, but I guarantee that every time you walk past your studio that is set up, 
with the lights and the easel and a blank canvas and all that, it will call to you. A blank canvas will always call to you, but a blank canvas in a suitcase calls to no one. Mm. The setup and that process, I think, I think a lot of people, or I think sometimes people think about making art and they go straight to the production of it and there's the thinking and then there's the preparation. So thank you for speaking to that and how important that part of the process is, not necessarily the products in and of itself. Oh, the, the, the product will never be done and the process will never be, will be finished. And there's nothing more terrifying than the first brushstroke and all that stuff. I mean, the, these are, these are all uh, the next stages down, just get it set up, have the place ready to go. Um, and yeah, honestly, the last, the last few years where I have been so transient and constantly setting up a new studio, constantly setting up a new space, um, you know, I was daunted by, I'm going to lose three hours just by setting up the place, but there's something about the three hours of setting up that inspires me to actually move into well let's just get that first brushstroke done because i've done all this work and setting it up and so now i've got that momentum going and sometimes the setting up of it is just it's like the packing of the snowball before you roll up your frosty <laughs> i like that uh image in my mind you have to start some you have to start somewhere and that is part of it and it's important even just if people started. aren't yeah even if people never see the snowball yeah. You know yeah. that you you made it and and it was part of it. Exactly. Okay. Well, anything that you want to tell people about in terms of what you're doing, where to find you if they want to know more. Well, yeah. Um I I have a website. It's brucehorak.com. I'm working on a project uh which I started in 2011 where I try to paint portraits of people. And uh, I'm now just over 600 portraits into this series. I'd like to get to 1,000. My goal is that portrait number 1,000 will be someone like, oh, I don't know, let's say David Suzuki. Uh, but if you can imagine yourself somewhere between my mom and David Suzuki, you are more than welcome to contact me and have your portrait, sit, portrait painted. Um, you can book a session and we do it over Zoom and uh, it's quick and painless and uh, yeah, it's it's all about getting 10,000 10, hours of practice in as an artist. And uh, hopefully there will be folks who want to join me for that. Oh, I'll have to give it some thought. <laughs> it's quick and painless, I guarantee. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you very much for your time, Bruce. My pleasure. Cheers. That's it for this episode. Thanks for tuning in. Join us next time for another episode of Life in Balance. The content of this podcast is not a substitute for medical or professional advice. For more information about Balance for Blind Adults and our programs and services, please visit us at www.balancefba.org. Find us on LinkedIn or follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Balance for Blind Adults.